Life cannot be defined simply in terms of these two metrics of money and power. And I called for a third metric, which is about well-being, wisdom, a sense of wonder about life and giving. And ironically, Jubin, right now, as we are all dealing with a great resignation, I feel the great resignation is really a great re-evaluation when people are looking at their lives and are asking questions like, is that what I really value or am I just buying off the shelf a cultural definition of what I should be valuing, you know, staying on the treadmill of a career that maybe no longer fulfills me. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit, a podcast that sits down with amazing leaders every week to discuss what it takes to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to build history-making companies. Speaking of incredible companies, we don't do sponsorships on the show. So if you're inspired by the stories of my guests, my call to action is to reach out and let's find a great home for you in the Kleiner portfolio. Ariana, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Jubin. It's so great to be with you. Kind of a fun setting for Amazing us. Amazing setting. I wish it was on video so people could see yeah. this incredible setting. It's beautiful. Are you going to tell everybody where we are? We're at the Calistoga Four Seasons for a CEO summit. And you came in early for me yes. to do this together. Absolutely. I would go anywhere <laughs> to do this with you. Well, it's nice seeing you on this side of the country rather than in New York City. Last time we were in my apartment having a nice lunch. My mother, when she saw the picture of our lunch, instead of zooming in on me and how did I look and what was my smile like, she went into every piece of food <laughs> on the table because she's a Persian mom. Yes. And so, and I'm a Greek mom. Exactly. And so the only thing that she cared, what was she serving? What was it like? How did it taste? <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is my mother. One of the things that blew my mind when... I was reflecting on the lunch that we had together. The food was great. Don't get me wrong. The conversation was great. But something that really stuck with me was that you interrupted me about five minutes in and you said, hold on, I'll be right back. And you go and you get a pen and paper <laughs> and you start writing down the things that we're talking about. Some of it was tactical business stuff about we're working together on Thrive. Some of it was like you wrote Tarof, which is a very Persian thing in my culture at the top and underlined it. I thought that was so cool. It's just a really good reminder about being intentional about listening and the way that that impacts people. It had an impact on me. Oh, I love that. Well, I basically love every interaction that I have. Otherwise, I wouldn't have it. I mean, I'm blessed that obviously there's always stuff we have to do that we don't want to do. But I like to the things that I was looking forward to as this conversation I want to really be fully present. And I think our attention is one of the greatest gifts we can give each other. And when it's fragmented, as our attention is most of the time, it's really a shame we're missing out on life. My mother's favorite saying was, don't miss the moment. That's all we have. Life is fragile. We're having more and more evidence every day of how fragile And you're fragile not kidding about that. Didn't you, didn't you write that on, the, on a bench? We wrote it on a bench when my mother died. She had a favorite lemon tree in our garden, and we 
put a bench under the lemon tree, which don't miss the moment. The reason that I love this podcast so much is I have never in my life been so present for this amount of time ever than when I do these podcasts. It is the most meditative thing that I've ever done. And that's why I want to keep doing it for purely selfish reasons. And I'm that's why so you're so good at here. it though. Because I'm so here. People sense that. Right now, the human attention span is shorter than that of the goldfish. <laughs> when people listening sense that we are both really present here, it has an impact on how present they can be. And I mean it sincerely. There's just nowhere I'd rather be than like right here doing these conversations. It's so special. So anyway, good to have you. Thank you. I start all of these things the same way, which is that I read my guests' backgrounds back to them. I will usually screw up, but in this case, you have a few very central and primary things in your resume. So I think I'll do okay. And then we'll use that as kind of a launching pad. Deal? Perfect. Okay. You went to Cambridge. You got your MA in economics. Then you started the Huffington Post in 2005, right? Yes. Did that for 11 years. Then you started Thrive. This was in September of 2016. Exactly. You're not going to say these things, so I will. You have been named to the Time Magazine's list of the world's 100 most influential people and the Forbes most powerful women list. You have authored 15 or 16 books? 15. 15 books. Is this the last one? The last one, yes. We'll see. 15 books, including Thrive and The Sleep Revolution. Your last two books have been international bestsellers. You also sit on numerous boards, including 1X, is that right? Onyx, Onyx. yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, that would make sense. And the B team, formerly you were on the Uber board until a couple years ago? Yes. Okay. How'd I do? Okay. Perfect. I have two daughters. Two daughters. Mm -hmm. Are you more comfortable on my side of the table or your side? You've done a lot of interviews and you've done a lot of interviewing. You have podcasts, you're Ariana. Which side do you like more? Well, I'm a very curious person. Yeah. So I would love to do a podcast where I interview you. <laughs> Not a chance. And there are definitely going to be some questions I would throw at you, Jubin. How am I doing pronouncing your name? Jubin, yeah. Does it sound yeah. Persian? Yeah, oh yeah, Jubin. Yeah. Jubin, like Ruben with a J. Yeah, I know, I know. But I'm saying about the nuance of the accent. So if you were to ask my mother, my family calls me Jubin. Jubin. It's a very soft J. Yeah, what do you prefer? I prefer simplicity. So like when I go to Starbucks, my name is Jack. Because <laughs> I just want to make my life easier. Well, I'm definitely not calling you Jack. I don't have the pride <laughs> in my name where... I need everyone to pronounce it perfectly. I, I like Jubin. It would be very weird if my family didn't call me Jubin. Because they've always called you Jubin. That, yeah, it would be very strange. Well, here's the deal. Publicly on the podcast, I would call you Jubin. Privately, when we're having lunch next time at my apartment, I call you Jubin to remind you of your Persian mother. That's fair. She would love that. Where it gets a little bit weird is when my cousins who call me Jubin, but in front of their white American friends, they call me Jubin. So they <laughs> context switch the way they use my name. Then it gets a little funky, but otherwise pretty it's easy. And I think my kid's name is going to be Jack. You do? I think so. I like exotic, but exotic also means difficult. What's if, what if it's a girl? Jacqueline. 
Jackie, Juliana, Juliana, or maybe have enough until I get a boy and then I get, and then I get a Jack. No, you have a lot of boys until you get the girl. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> what was conversation like for you and your sister at the dinner table growing up? So my mother was an amazing cook, an amazing conversationalist. And so first of all, conversations around our kitchen table were very long. It was an endless feast of questions and answers and multiple servings of food. You know, we lived in a one-bedroom apartment in Athens, Greece. We didn't really have money, but my mother always made us feel abundant because she had that sense that abundance is not a function of how much money you have. It's a function of your attitude to life and the love you bring to everything you are doing. So I was very blessed to be brought up by an extraordinary mother who loved my sister and me unconditionally, who made us feel we could do anything, but who also made us feel that if we failed, she wouldn't love us any less, and it wasn't a big deal. I mean, in fact, she used to say to me, failure is not the opposite of success. It's a stepping stone to success. So she made me very comfortable with taking risks and failing along the way. If it's okay, I would love to ask about 2000 with your mother passing away. It's incredibly touching, the story. Can you talk about going to the farmer's market how you got frustrated every time you would go to the farmer's market and then maybe the last time that you went to the farmer's market with her? So my mother had this incredible ability to connect with everybody. She really felt that deep connection. She could not have an impersonal exchange, whether it was with a barista in a coffee shop or somebody in a farmer's market. She would literally connect with them, share stories. So going to a farmer's market with my mother... <laughs> was an expedition. It was not a transactional <laughs> relationship with anyone. Like, I'll give you this money, you give me this carrots, we're done. <laughs> and people loved her. And she had had a lot of heart problems. And the day she died, we had gone shopping and she had bought everything and had spread it all at the kitchen table and invited everybody to sit down and eat with her and us and the children. Of course, she was the ultimate yaya. Yaya is the Greek for grandmother and uh, adored her granddaughters and their daughter. And that night she passed and it's always hard when you lose a parent at any age. It was particularly hard because she'd always been the foundation of my existence. And also because when she died, I found that a lot of the ways she was leading her life, very present, always, never multitasking, were things that I had to learn to do. You said the most mad you've ever seen her get was when you were on your phone with your daughters. Yes. Multitasking. It's like she literally looked at me and said in a very stern Greek accent, I abhor multitasking. <laughs> How long did it take you to get over that? You know, I, again, found tremendous solace in my deep conviction that death is not the end. 
that this is not an existence that we are living through and then we die and it's over. I absolutely don't believe that. That made all the difference, the sense that the soul lives on. Obviously, the personality dies, but the soul lives on. I wish I could meet her. It sounds amazing. Oh, she would have loved you. She sounds amazing. <laughs> she, everything you described reminds me a lot of, of you. What about dad? Can I ask? Of course. So dad was a journalist, an intellectual. He had published an underground newspaper in Greece when Greece was occupied by the Germans during the Second World War and was arrested, spent a large part of the war in a German concentration camp and came out somehow feeling that he didn't have to live by what he considered bourgeois values. So he was very unfaithful. Hmm. In fact, when my mother complained, he told her not to interfere in his private life. No kidding. (laughs) I wouldn't recommend anybody tries that at (laughs) home. But he was an amazing father. He was brilliant. He totally introduced me to the world of journalism, to newspapers, and uh, it was really a love affair that has never ended. So you grew up in Greece, and you said it well. Your mother was incredibly encouraging of what you wanted to do, but was also really supportive of a safety net for you. Like She yes. always gave you a fallback, is the, the way that I interpreted it listening to you, to the point where you fell in love with the idea of going to Cambridge. And it was like something that you saw in a magazine, right? Exactly. It was just a picture of Cambridge in a magazine. (laughs) And something made me long to go there. And I told everybody who would listen. And everybody said to me, don't be ridiculous. You don't speak English. We don't have money. No English. No. And even English girls find it hard to get into Cambridge. My mother said, let's find out how you can get into Cambridge. Let's find out how you can learn English quickly, how you can take the exams you need to take. So she literally went with me to the British Council in Athens and I started learning English. I spoke French because in Greece at the time, not anymore, French was what they call the diplomatic language, the official foreign language. So The language of the bourgeois. The language of the bourgeois. So I I learned French. As a result, my accent is better in French than in English. (laughs) So anyway, I learned English. I took my GCs, as they call them, the General Certificates of Education. I applied for a scholarship. And I got into Cambridge to everybody's surprise, especially mine. (laughs) And she said, Ariana, we're going to try and do this. But if we don't, it's okay. Exactly. That was the best permission to to fail. fail. Exactly. That was really the emotional safety net. She basically said, this is an adventure. We are going to do everything we can. You are going to work hard. You are going to sit for all these exams and... If you fail, there will be another adventure. You feel like you try and impart that on your daughters today? Absolutely. In fact, I wrote a book for my daughters called On Becoming Fearless, which is a book for young women who very often put so many burdens on themselves or suffer from imposter syndrome or are trapped in this fear of failing. So... 
the theme of the book is that becoming fearless is a process. And you're never really totally fearless. Because for me, fearlessness means doing things you want to do even while you're afraid. Not to let your fears stop you. I've heard you say working mothers, they take the baby out and they put the guilt in. (laughs) Yes, you know, working mothers, we are perpetually guilty. I've been working on that all my life Hmm. because we love our work. I mean, a lot of women obviously have to work because they need to make money. But also a lot of women love their work. Mm -hmm. And it's a sense of fulfillment that makes them better mothers. So we need to take that guilt out. I remember my mom, she's basically raised me as a single mother my entire life. Dad didn't, not too dissimilar from your father, like probably wasn't the best husband that he could have been. And she got remarried. And I remember we moved down to San Diego when I was turning 14, going to high school. And the whole plan was for my mother to stop working. She was having a second kid. And the idea was that we would go down to San Diego, she could retire and enjoy her life. And in that process, she realized, we realized, it was pretty obvious, she loves working. What it gives her is so much sense of purpose and satisfaction, especially when you're a first-generation immigrant, coming from, in your case, Greece, or in her case, Iran, and using work as your avenue for upward mobility, I think it carries a really special meaning in your heart. Absolutely. I think it's also... As you said, a sense of purpose. And I think our children see that. Mm. And the most important thing, as well as unconditional love, is to give your children a sense that you are fulfilled in your own life. Because if you are not fulfilled, it's going to bleed over into the way you are as a mother. Not only did you go to Cambridge, not only did you learn English, You then decided that that wasn't enough, and so you became president of the Cambridge Union, which is the debate society. And I didn't realize this until I started researching this, but it's a big deal. You started getting into press. This is when things started to go a little crazy for you. Yes, the Cambridge Union and the Oxford Union have this special place in the cultural life of Britain. And uh, for me... What I loved is the spectacle of people's hearts and minds being moved by words. I just loved it. I would sit for hours listening to speakers during these debates, and I wanted to learn to speak and to debate, and I was terrible. I would read every word. My accent was even (laughs) worse than it is now. At a time and in a country which was very snobbish about accents. Mm -hmm. But somehow I learned to speak. I tell that story to everybody who is afraid of public speaking Mm -hmm. because, you know, they say that public speaking is people's number one fear. Uh The second being death by mutilation. (laughs) (laughs) So my advice to anyone who wants to speak is that if I learn to public speak, anybody could learn. So let me just get this straight. You go to Cambridge, you go to the UK and you do not speak English yet. Oh, no, 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 of course I do. So you have now become fluent in 
English from the time that you were ready to leave Greece to the time that you were going to arrive for university? Well, yes, I had to take all my exams in English to get into Cambridge. And forget about being insecure about making friends and talking to people. I'm insecure. I think I speak English pretty well. I mean, English was my second language, but I I think I speak... (laughs) And you don't have an accent. I don't have an accent, but I don't know idioms, which makes me very... Absolutely. That was a big problem. Right. Because I would say things like, I remember horseback riding. Mm -hmm. And I remember (laughs) an upper class kind of student from Trinity College saying to me, well, what other riding is there? Do you go donkey riding in Greece? You know, so I was definitely ridiculed about my lack of idiomatic English, Mm -hmm. speaking textbook English Mm -hmm. sometimes. But little by little, English became the language in which I think. Mm. And then there was this turning point when it became the language in which I dream. Mm. And that's kind of amazing because that means that it's taken over your subconscious. It's incredible. So things start to happen because you're in the Cambridge Union, correct? Like you start to earn some notoriety because of your role as the president of the Cambridge Union? I was the first foreigner to be president of the Cambridge Union. It had a tradition of a lot of prime ministers and political figures coming from the Oxford or the Cambridge Union. There was this foreign girl. I was the third woman. So I ended up on the front pages of newspapers when I was elected. And the president always does a debate on a topic they choose. And mine was on the changing role of women an English publisher happened to see the debate and sent me a letter inviting me to write a book on the themes of the debate. (laughs) I wrote back that, thank you so much, but I can't write. And he wrote back and he said, can you have lunch? And he took me to lunch and offered me a modest advance. And he said, this will help you live And if by the end of this year, the book you wrote is not publishable, I lost whatever, I think it was 6,000 pounds. But I have a feeling you'll write a book that will be worth publishing. So at first I was really afraid of that. And then I had so many friends walking around with unpublished manuscripts who said to me, do it, nothing to lose. So that was a, turns out, smashing success, correct? It was, Uh, It was published in, I don't know, over 30 languages. (laughs) It was published when I was 23. Suddenly I was 24. I'd been around the world promoting it. And I literally had a midlife crisis because I thought it would take me a long time to achieve financial independence, to write the things I wanted to write. And it was really the Peggy Lee song. You're probably too young to know it. Is that all there is? You know, what's life about? So, is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the boo. It was really like a spiritual midlife crisis. And I literally locked myself up and wrote a book. Everybody wanted me to keep writing about women. But literally, I had nothing else to say. (laughs) It said everything I I wanted to say or believed in that book. And then 
I wanted to write a book which was about the crisis in leadership, the crisis in political leadership. I had studied economics and politics at Cambridge. So I, I locked myself up, wrote this book, and then nobody wanted to publish it. It was rejected by 36 publishers. Even the original from book number one didn't want to touch it. Nobody wanted to touch it. So by then I had run out of the money I had made from my first book. And I really thought maybe, well, the first book might have been a fluke. Yeah. And I maybe need to go get a real job. Mm. And I remember walking down St. James's Street in London where I was living and seeing Barclays Bank and going in and armed with nothing but a lot of Greek chutzpah, asking for an overdraft, which is a loan, basically. I had nothing. And the bank manager, whose name is Ian Bell, gave it to me. It changed my life because it made it possible for me to keep things together until... I got a few more rejections and finally an acceptance. The book didn't do well at all, but the point was that it kept me on the path. And I I was doing a fireside chat recently with the new president of Barclays Bank. I mentioned the story, and so now he's trying to find what happened to him. (laughs) (laughs) What was your internal state like when you go from financial independence, smashing success, everybody wants a piece of you, at a very young age, and you then realize that all the things that society told you were supposed to be awesome, you learned at a very young age, actually aren't that fulfilling. The money, the fame, all of those things. Kind of an amazing gift to have at a young age rather than at a later age. Because most people don't get that until they make serious money in their 40s and 50s, and then 50 years later, they're deeply unfulfilled because money doesn't actually work. To then go from that point to writing a book, and then kind of hitting rock bottom in that respect. What was going through your head? You know, it was a very hard time. But in And ret- how old were you, sorry? 24, 25. The second book was finally published when I was 27. Mm-hmm. But it was really, when I look back, an incredible gift that life turned out that way. Because it solidified my profound belief that there is more to life than uh, money and status slash power. I always had a very deep spiritual conviction. I had studied comparative religion in India before I went to Cambridge. So that was something that I was very grounded in. But this brought it home exactly in the way you are describing. And interestingly enough, you know how life only makes sense looking back. You know, very often as we're living it, it doesn't make sense. But looking back, in 2014, I wrote a book called Thrive, which is the philosophical foundation of Thrive the Company. And the theme of that book is that life cannot be defined simply in terms of these two metrics of money and power. And I called for a third metric, which is about well-being, wisdom, a sense of wonder about life and giving. And ironically, Jubin, right now, as we are all dealing with a great resignation, I feel the great resignation is really a great re-evaluation when people are looking at their lives and are asking questions like, is that what I really value or am I just buying 
off the shelf a cultural definition of what I should be valuing, staying on the treadmill of a career that maybe no longer fulfills me, or prioritizing money over impact. So I hear these questions everywhere. And I feel very blessed that I had the opportunity through these accidents of um, asking these questions in my 20s. So I actually have a specific question about 97. You were 30 years old, divorced, like you got a divorce. Is that right? I was born in 1950. Okay, so in 97, you got a divorce? Is that the right year? Yes. Okay, wrong age, right year. Yeah. (laughs) I'm 71, Jubin. So in 97, you got a divorce, and you had not officially started the Huff Post yet, Huffington Post. You had started Ariana Online the year before, which was the precursor to the Huffington Post. Yes. And you moved with your two daughters both of them, right? They were both born at this point. Yes. From D.C., which is where you were living with your husband at the time, who was in in politics, to L.A. I've heard you talk about this as a very difficult time. Was it? I don't know. I'd love to hear you just go back into your mind. It was very difficult. I had married for life. I didn't think I would get divorced. Uh, That guilt that you mentioned, being a working mother was compounded by being a working divorced mother. And the thing that as a mother, you can ask your mother to confirm it, you want more than anything is never to inflict pain on your children. You want to protect them from pain. And there I was inflicting pain on my children because divorce is hard. I know 50% of marriages end in divorce. It doesn't make it any easier on kids, although staying in a marriage that's not working is definitely harder. So it was a a very hard time. And uh, the fact that I had the support of my mother and my sister, you know, were very tribal, who moved in with me, (laughs) made it easier. So you do all that. Your career in earnest, besides the book writing, you don't have a traditional career yet. The Huffington Post has not really begun at this point. After the book that didn't uh, succeed, the second book, I wrote biographies of Maria Callas, Pablo Picasso. I wrote a book on Greek mythology. And then I wrote a lot of books on politics. I was very passionate about politics, particularly passionate about the fact that everywhere... You were seeing like two nations, those who were doing well and those left behind. And I wrote a book about that called Third World America, how we're becoming a third world country. And what I wrote then is even worse now, of course. We see the growing inequalities, everything that has led to the dangers we're seeing in a democracy. I was always very conscious of that. And that's where... My books were about after uh, my biographies. In 2003, you run in the California recall election, which then ultimately that process was the inspiration to you understanding, I think, a lot more about media. Is that right? And the way that coverage was done? Understanding a lot more about digital media, about what was happening, because I was running as an independent against Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was the Republican candidate. It was not a typical election because it was a recall election. 
And I was running on these issues of growing inequalities, uh, climate change, and we did a little online ad, like one of those $2,000 online ads called The Hybrid versus The Hammer. I was driving a hybrid at the time, a Toyota <laughs> hybrid, which was early days. <laughs> oh, yeah. Everybody's trying to drive hybrid or electric, or not everybody, but it's much more mm-hmm. commonplace. Mm-hmm. I was driving this little hybrid, and Arnold was driving a Hummer. So we did the hybrid versus the Hummer. And suddenly, this little ad turned viral. And newspapers like the LA Times were devoting an entire page on this ad. So I saw something new is happening here. It's kind of the democratization of media, that if you have a strong message, you can actually get through and have traditional media pick up the message. So it was an amazing experience. Learning And the person running my campaign was Van Jones, who is now a CNN. A CNN political commentator. Yes. No kidding. Yes. So we had a real grassroots team that, that yeah. cared a lot about prison reform and climate change and growing inequalities. And it became very clear we had no chance of winning and that Arnold was going to win and that Gray Davis, the Democratic governor, that the recall election was about would actually be better than Arnold. (laughs) So I removed myself from the election because I didn't want any of the votes Mm -hmm. going to me to make it less likely that Gray Davis would lose. In the end, he did lose. Arnold did become the California governor. It was a very short-lived campaign, I think under two months. And as you said, I learned a lot. And again, out of a failure came the Huffington Post, which was, in a way, what my mother had taught me. 2005 is when you started the Huffington Post. So call it like a year, year and a half after all the election stuff. It was all digital, right? All digital. There was no print. No. Was anybody doing that? Did people make you feel stupid? Well, definitely it was something new. And definitely, I had fallen in love, as you pointed out, with Ariana online and with the idea of media being open to anyone who had something to say. But also, I wanted to elevate that. Because remember, at the time, blogging, as it was called, was supposed to be something that people who couldn't get a job were doing in their pajamas out of their parents' basement. That was like the caricature. And in fact, if the New York Times had realized the power of online media, they would, they would have, have done you. it themselves. Yep. No, they would they yeah. would never have left any room right. for us. I mean, that's really what has been called the innovator's dilemma, that basically if you are doing very well in an old paradigm, it's much harder to see the new paradigm emerging. Now, of course, the New York Times is doing an amazing job online. Right. Right. So, We had an incredible number on our first day of celebrity bloggers because I wanted to elevate blogging. I wanted to make it clear that anybody who had something to say, whether it was Ellen DeGeneres, John Cusack, Walter Cronkite, Larry David, all these people blogged for the Huffington Post on day one and many others, that it was easier for you to just write it instead of having to deal with editors and 
the time that would pass between an idea and putting it out in the cultural bloodstream. And also, we always wanted to do reporting. So it was a combination of reporting, opinion through bloggers. And uh, gradually, of course, we added dozens of sections on everything from sleep (laughs) to food to gay rights. Talk about doing unscalable things. I heard you say that you would have people in the early days send you emails or faxes of their article, and then you would get it into the Huffington Post. My job was to make it easy for them. Yes. Because that's really what we offered. Mm. So when there was something in the news, like there had been a story about the Yalta Agreement, and I knew Arthur Schlesinger, the great historian, who had been part of that. So I called him, and I said, would you please write something about that? And he said, I don't know what blogging is. What's blogging? I said, don't worry about it. Just if you have something to say about this. He said, I have something to say. I said, can you just fax it to me? (laughs) That's unbelievable. So Huffington Post, obviously, I think most people listening know this, but turned into an absolute media powerhouse. Ultimately ended up getting acquired by AOL in 2011 for a little over $300 Were there any moments before that where you thought it wasn't going to make it? There was never a moment when we thought it wasn't going to make it. There was a moment when we didn't know how sustainable it would be in terms of profitability. But that's when I collapsed in 2007, having bought into the collective delusion that in order to succeed, I had to be always on. I didn't have time to take care of myself. I was a founder. I was a mom. I was divorced. So I collapsed, hit my head on my desk, broke my cheekbone. And that was the beginning of my realizing that burnout was not just my problem, but a global epidemic. So I started covering these issues exhaustively on the Huffington Post. And in fact, by the time I left in 2016, 50% of our traffic wasn't coming from politics. That's incredible. I've heard a backstory. Tell me if this is true or not. So you were going around evangelizing, not as a business, but just evangelizing this idea that burnout is a serious problem in our society. Did Jack Ma, did you go visit him, the founder of Alibaba? Uh, What happened is that Jack Ma was holding the first women's conference that Alibaba held in Hongzhou, you know, his headquarters. What year around was this at? That was 2014. That was After not the Huffington about the Huff- Post, before Thrive, Thrive as a business started. Exactly. Okay. So I was invited to come and speak. I had just published Thrive, the book. And when I was asked to go and speak, I assumed they wanted me to speak about media because that's all I was speaking about. And I was told by Joe Tsai, who was like Jack Ma's number two at Alibaba, no, we want you to speak about Thrive. He said, Jack is really interested in that. So I went, I spoke, and then that night, Jack had a dinner for the speakers, and I was sitting next to him, and he had heard my speech about the need to move beyond success being fueled by burnout and what it was doing to individual lives and the culture. And he said, if I were you, I would leave the Huffington Post. You've done that and launch a company around these themes. 
and bring it to businesses. And he said, if you do that, I will uh, invest. And at the time, I honestly thought he was crazy. <laughs> Absolutely no intention of ever leaving the Huffington Post. I loved it. It was doing incredibly well. We were in 18 countries. We had won a Pulitzer. You know, it was a big global media company. And it was my baby. It had my name. Why would I leave it? <laughs> he planted a seed in a way because two years later, I did leave. I had gotten to the point where I thought, as I was going around the world, speaking around these themes of Thrive and then a book I wrote, on sleep, the sleep revolution, I realized the conversation had changed. We had moved from, oh, does anybody really need to sleep? Isn't that for losers? Isn't John Bon Jovi right? You know, I'll sleep when I'm dead. To, yes, I know, I know, but how do I do it? So we had moved from, do I need to do something to how do I do it? And I couldn't do that through a media company. I had to build a behavior change technology company. And that was really my mission and my passion by then. And it was incredibly hard. I, I can't say that it was an easy decision. I remember talking to a friend and saying, I just don't know what to do. I'm making this list of pros and this list of cons. And she said, don't make lists. You know what your heart wants. Close your eyes, take a deep breath and jump. And that's what I did. So I was literally leaving a very successful company to go to a second startup. In your mid-60s? 66. And starting in a little office in New York. <laughs> <laughs> Am I over-Hollywoodizing this idea that there was no moment, no aha moment, no things or data points in that two-year span from when Jack laid the seed into the ground to when you ultimately decided to do it, that you said, okay. There was a series of events and conversations when I saw that people wanted to know how to lead a healthier, more fulfilling life, how to have what the Greek philosophers called a good life that was more than just a life where the goals were money and power. So I think at some point, all these conversations led to one answer, which is I, I wanted to do that. I wanted to build that and being willing to take the risk and fail. I'd argue your opportunity cost is higher than most founders that are probably at the CEO summit in these next couple of days. Did you? But ever... Let me tell you something yeah. funny, Jubin, yeah. because talking to some of the founders who are here, it was absolutely stunning. I flew in with eight other founders from New York. Mm -hmm. Everybody was talking about how much they sleep, how important it is for them, how they prioritize it, how critical it is for their decision making. That is seismic. I mean, you know, you are in this world, and I'm not saying this is universal. <laughs> there are still plenty of founders who are buying the old belief system. But it's amazing what's happening. Literally, people were wearing their hoops and their aura rings and they're comparing <laughs> deep sleep and heart rate variability. And so the world is changing in front of our very eyes. When I launched Thrive in 2016, our mission was to end the stress and burnout epidemic. People were not talking about burnout much. Now, it's part of every conversation. It's part of every 
business article around the employee experience, and that's a big shift. Thrive started in 2016. It's a behavior change technology and platform with a mission to end stress in the burnout epidemic. Customers include Accenture, Walmart, SAP, Salesforce, JP Morgan, the list goes on. It's incredible. Chase, Procter & Gamble. I could keep going. It was founded in 2016. It's raised $146 million to date across three rounds of funding. We were ABC, the third. You, we were the, the third. you led the C. And then I think Jazz Ventures, IVP, Goldman, Owl Ventures, uh, most recently valued at $700 million, which does that make you laugh now? I just feel like this company is just getting going. I don't know if you do too, but I just feel like we're in the beginning stages. Absolutely. And it's double the value of Huffington Post when you left. <laughs> does that feel a little funny? I know. I know. I, I really do feel that we're just getting started and that the pandemic has been a huge accelerant because now this conversation around burnout and mental resilience is no longer just an HR conversation. It's a conversation across the whole company. Yeah. There's a quote that you've said that I thought would be an interesting framing that I wanted to just get your take on, which is that success is created from the inside out, not the outside in. Can you talk about that? Yes. I really believe that success is really a function of how we approach all the challenges that life brings us. There's no life without challenges. And how resilient are you? How much are we able to be in the eye of the hurricane when all these challenges and obstacles come along the way? That's why the fireside chat that Mamoun and I are having at this conference is called mindfulness as a competitive edge. I really believe mindfulness the ability to stay centered or to course correct from being out of center, which we're always going to be many, many times a day, is a superpower. Mindfulness, like walking through the farmer's market and taking an hour rather than 10 minutes. Well, and even if it's not something that involves a lot of time, we now know that you can course correct from stress in 60 to 90 seconds. And I say that because... It was always very important for me for Thrive to be very rigorous and very data-driven. For Thrive not to be another way to look at benefits as warm and fuzzy ways to help your employees, but to make the connection between the employee experience and business metrics like retention, attrition, productivity, healthcare costs. There's a Thrive blog that has some really interesting nuggets that I dug up. One was that it was talking about how in the Army in October, they revised the training field manual for peak performance. It's the first update that the Army has done in this context in over eight years, and it's known as the Holistic Health and Fitness (laughs) Manual. And in that updated version, it contains things like sleep, meditation, serving others, spiritual readiness, And so to your point about the fuzzy feel-good stuff, this is in the Army. It's in the Army training field manual. (laughs) And in fact, one of Where like you think of everyone as macho and how this is the opposite of that, apparently. Exactly. And that's why our behavior change methodology is broken down into micro steps that we call too small to fail. And one of them is a breathing technique that Navy SEALs use in moments of extreme stress called box breathing, 
which is you breathe in to the count of four, you pause to the count of four, you exhale to the count of four. And it's kind of amazing. And if ever you wake up in the middle of the night and you're having a hard time going back to sleep, you can practice box breathing. If you are in the moment of a lot of stress, you can practice box breathing. So our hundreds of micro steps are simple like that, that help us return to our own center. And the reason why this is doable, Jubin, is because we all have that place of peace, wisdom, and strength in us. If we didn't, that wouldn't be possible, but we do. It's like our birthright, and every spiritual and philosophical addition says the same thing in different symbols and different language. One of the other blog posts that you wrote was about your word of the year. Resilience Plus is the on-demand feature we all need in the new year. I thought this was very clever. Can you talk about that? Yes, well, last year in 2021, my word of the year was resilience. Uh-huh. And this year it was resilience plus. Because we all have learned that there isn't going to be a time of returning to some kind of normal. That the way when we were younger, perhaps, we all thought there would come a day when everything would go our way. We're now realizing that uncertainty, challenges are part of our lives. And how we deal with them is a function of how conscious we are and how much we use these tools to be able to get in the eye of the hurricane. And the other thing that's important for us in our methodology is to bring together all the different journeys, sleep, food, movement, focus, you know, we're all increasingly addicted to our phones. Yes. Money, a lot of the people we work with, like we're working with hundreds of thousands of associates at Walmart who work in the stores, minimum wage, financial stress is a huge source of stress and connection. So interconnecting all these and breaking it down into micro steps and storytelling, because people also are inspired and empowered by listening or reading the stories of others. In this blog, there is a quote. For a long time, it had seemed to me that life was about to begin, real life. There was always some obstacle in the way, something to be gotten through first, some unfinished business, time still to be served, a debt to be paid. Then life would begin. At last, it dawned on me that these obstacles were my life. I thought that was a really good description of Resilience Plus. And I assume Resilience Plus is kind of like a play on Disney Plus and some of (laughs) these other things, right? (laughs) Exactly. That it's ongoing and never ending. There's something you said in passing that really deeply resonated with me. And I have never put an expression on it that I thought so succinctly articulated how I feel. It was the roommate in your head. Can you talk about the roommate in your head? The obnoxious roommate in your head. I have the most obnoxious roommate in my head at all times. So we did a mental health curriculum with Stanford based on their latest brain research. We being Thrive. Yes. Yep. Which identifies eight biotypes that lead to stress, depending on what your biotype is. So my biotype, and it sounds like maybe your biotype too, is rumination. Now ruminators have an obnoxious roommate in their head that beats them up over everything they do or say that's not 
quote-unquote perfect. We judge ourselves for our mistakes, but even we judge ourselves for imagined mistakes, for not being amazing enough, for whatever it is that we are going through. That obnoxious roommate talks to us about us the way we wouldn't even allow our worst enemies to do. So we need to deal with that. And once you identify it, it's much easier to deal with it by bringing humor, by creating a specific time during the day when you maybe take five minutes to write down whatever you are worried or upset about. We call it worry time. Instead of this intruding into your life every moment. And also it's great in interacting with people you are working with. If you know they're also ruminators, you can support each other. How loud is that voice in your head now? Much, much less loud. That's why I'm so optimistic that we can work with this voice. Because it used to be much more obnoxious? It used to be obnoxious and constant. He or she was a real pain in the ass. Absolutely. I mean, let's say I would finish this conversation we are having, which I'm enjoying and loving. And then I might spend 48 hours beating myself up. Oh, my God, you forgot to tell Jubin this. Or when you said that story, I don't think it really worked at all. It's like, you know, you can tear yourself apart in multiple ways. To the point where literally nobody could do what you do to yourself. Yes, I can go for eight miles, 10 mile run and be like, you didn't run long enough Ah. or work all day and be like, you're being lazy. To the point where you said it well, you wouldn't let your enemies talk to you like that. Yes. And it's just this constant discontent. I have to send you the thriving mind. Please. I promise you it will make a real difference. Please. Is it true that the average person looks at their phone 150 times a day? Oh, yes. Easily. That's why, actually, I have a question for you about that, because you said that when you were a kid, it was soccer that was what you loved. But for the next generation, you think it's going to be online gaming. Yeah. Why? And Uh, how? (laughs) I had a conversation with the president of Activision Blizzard, the video game company. And what he was describing to me was, look, when you were a kid, you played sports on soccer fields. That was your game. And so you grew up to become a soccer fan because those were the things that you had an affinity for as a child. What he was explaining to me is that kids now, my little brother is a great example. They spend more time playing very specific video games, Call of Duty or whatever, than they do necessarily playing sports, especially in COVID. And so they grow up wanting to listen, watch, engage with the video games that they grew up with rather than the sports. That's why I say that. I understand, but do we really lose something? Oh, we lose a lot. Yeah. Talk about attention spans. I think that's what's hurting us so much. Okay, can you tell I don't like being on this side of the table? I like asking (laughs) the questions. One of the things that I was reflecting on was that it is amazing that you continue to reinvent yourself over and over again. Whether that is someone who is Greek that moves to the UK and learns a different language Someone that starts with one type of book, then goes into politics, then goes into the biography biography of Pablo Picasso, and on and on and on. And now into really just being amazing in the work that you're doing around mental health 
how do you do that? It just blows my mind that you can continue to reinvent your sense of self. And what I always say is that people are like, your podcast is amazing. You should do this full time. And I always say, boy, I hope that in 10 years, the podcast is a footnote of what I've accomplished in my career. Like, I hope I can reinvent myself to the way where there's something greater than this that I can go do. And I think you've done that in a really elegant way. So I guess it's a really long-winded way of me asking, do you think about that? Are you intentional in the way that you do it? I'm definitely not intentional. I find that I love learning in everything I'm doing. Instead of doing the same thing again and again and again, I feel I metabolize experience quickly. So once I've done something, I've done it. And then I want to throw myself into the next thing. I think it's funny when people send me articles on Pablo Picasso, and I feel like, you know, I've done Pablo Picasso. You know? <laughs> That was like 1988. <laughs> you said you metabolize experiences quickly. Can you go deeper on that? Yes, what I mean is that I throw myself into something. And because I throw myself into something, at some point I feel this is done. Like I'm not learning anything anymore. So what is now compelling me? to the next thing. It's almost like a drive to learn and to immerse myself in something new. That's what happened when I left the Huffington Post, to immerse myself in building a product, a behavior change product, which I'd never done before, and bringing a new team together. And we are hiring, let's not forget that, right? And learning and having an impact on people's lives. That's incredibly important to me, whether it's through politics or through media or now through a behavior change, resilience, mental health company. Having an impact on people's lives is the most fulfilling thing. It's very cool. Speaking of hiring, let's assume you're hiring across the board. Is that a fair assumption? Absolutely. Engineering, product, sales, marketing. Any key roles. Any key roles. And anything that you think of right now that you're like, we need this hire. Anything that comes to mind that if you're listening to this. So many. We have over 60 job openings. In fact, I told our head of recruiting, who is fantastic, who joined us from Drift, Keith, that you're going to give me this chance to recruit on your podcast. (laughs) And he said that he wanted to give his personal email, Keith, at thriveglobal.com. And please hit him with any resume, bio, anything in any field. What does the word grit mean to you? So grit for me is resilience plus. Greed is no matter what life brings us, to be able to absorb it and be able to accept what we cannot change. I love the serenity prayer. Change what we can and have the wisdom to know the difference. And now, Jubin, what does greed mean to you? You've had so many people, so many people share their definition of greed. Do you have your own compound definition? As you were finishing that answer, I could see in your eyes that you were going to ask it to me. I could see it. I've never been asked it, but I think the way that I would describe grit is that you accept really shitty things 
that happen to you, but you don't accept them as shitty. You accept them as opportunities. I love that. I love that. It's basically using everything for your advantage in the sense of using everything as greased for the meal, as something that you can grow from. What if your life, the ball always bounced your way? What if at every twist and turn, things weren't happening against you, but for you? You know, a lot of people think that grit is this really hard thing, which it is. But if you can change your perspective towards those hard things, moving in the direction towards progress on being a better version of yourself. I don't know. I think it's a nice, healthy relationship with the word grit. I love it. Actually, uh, my favorite quote is from Rumi, a Persian Persian poet, poet, uh, who said, live life as though everything is rigged in your favor. Yeah. Oh, she said it better than me. That's great. <laughs> that is great. Well, thank you. You're already late, so I appreciate you. I'm really looking forward to spending the next couple of days together. Me I, too. I just can't wait. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Also, we love feedback, so feel free to email us, grit at kleinerperkins.com. 